0: See how they're going to abandon me up here? <laughs> it's all right. I have the microphone. <laughs> My name is Cori. I'm a very grateful, enthusiastic member of the Worldwide Fellowship of Alanon and Alateen. Hi. Hi. And it means something special to me to say that with all the Alateens here. This is the first conference I've been at where there have been a significant number of Alateens, and they've brought a special spirit and energy to this conference. And not only that, one of them in particular I need to recognize, and that's Sutton, who saved my husband from a watery death yesterday in the boat. <laughs> Poor Sutton ended up on a boat with five old people. Little did he know that he was going to be needed to save my husband as the boat went this way and my husband went that way. Now, my husband will tell you he hesitated just a moment before he reached out and grabbed him back in. But I do appreciate it from the bottom of my heart, Sutton, because I do love my husband dearly. Um, I want to thank Sam for her honesty, her openness, and her willingness to share. Um, And I'm a little embarrassed to tell you I was almost 36 when I got here, Um, I could have been 12. I really could have. I want to thank the committee for inviting me and my husband to be here and allowing us to bring guests, Jason and Ashley. I want to thank Jason and Ashley for coming from Montgomery. They got in the car when they were asked to come, and it's meant so much to me and to Kent. My husband's over there someplace, and I'm not going to make him stand up, but he's there. Um, I want to thank um, everybody who's offered to host us, even if we have not taken you up on that opportunity. That's an awful lot of generosity. And I really want to extend my thanks to the ladies of this afternoon. They know who they are. They were wonderful and generous and kind and loving to Kent and I, and we had a wonderful time with them. Um, I want to thank particularly Ellen, who has touched more hearts than you know, um, without even meeting us. I think she had a little something to do with me being here, and I'm extremely grateful for that. But I'm really grateful for the time I get to spend with her because I don't see her very often being in Alabama. And I want to thank all the other speakers because, um, and the tapers, because I am the queen of, of, of tapes. I am um, I'm I'm from Wetumpka. I'm not from Wetumpka, Alabama. I am in Wetumpka, Alabama at the moment, um, and that's where I found recovery. And um, I get so much from people who are willing to stand up at a podium and share openly and honestly about their experiences. It's not an easy, it's not an easy thing to do. Um, it's incredibly intimidating to do it at Crested Butte. Um, and... Um, I'm really nervous because I want to do a good job for Al-Anon. It is not for me, but for Al-Anon, because as a direct result of Al-Anon and Alcoholics Anonymous, I am not the woman I was when I got here on September 18th, 1998. I got here on my two-month wedding anniversary. I had waited almost 36 years to meet and marry the perfect man. He was a raging alcoholic when I did it, (laughs) but there is nothing wrong with me that his not drinking as much would not fix. I didn't even want him to quit drinking completely. I just wanted him to drink basically like me because I wanted everybody to do everything like me. Um, I mean, Ashley's been wearing a shirt around the condo that says, what do you mean it's not all about me? I want that shirt. Um, I uh, did not grow up in an alcoholic home. To the best of my knowledge, I suspect someplace way back there, there may be alcoholism. I don't know. I don't care. It doesn't matter to me anymore. Um, what I know today is that I have a spiritual illness, um, and it's called family disease of alcoholism. Uh, I'm going to start actually in the middle uh, about when I got here. Um, so I said I got here on our two-month wedding anniversary. I had um, met my high, my husband in high school. We'd gone to high school together in Singapore. Now, if you are wondering about whether or not there's a God out there, um, there is no way I, on my own, could have met my husband in Singapore in 1987, had him track me down on the Internet in 1997, and got married to him in 1998 in Alabama. There's no way I could have made that happen. Um, I will tell you that when we were in high school together, I was uh, we did not date. Turns out I don't know how to date. <laughs> I'm instantly in love. I love you. I love you, I love you. That's me. That's me dating. I'm attractive, aren't I? Mm. And you wonder why I ended up with an alcoholic. I can tell you why I ended up with an alcoholic. It's why I ended up with anybody, because he needed me. I love that. Don't tell me you love me. I make that happen later. You must need me, because if you need me, you won't leave me. That's my motto. That's the slogan I brought into the program. Fabulous. Um... <laughs> It's, it's tough living with somebody like me. But we met in high school in 19, 1979 is when we met in high school. And um, I came into the high school, and my senior year I'd come from the Philippines. I had spent, I'm, I'm my originally Canadian, my mother is English, my father was Dutch, spent most of my life growing up overseas. And by my senior year of high school, I was in Singapore. And I did not want to be in Singapore. Um, I was sure that my father had done it to me once again. Poor, pitiful me being put upon, um, and went to Singapore, and I met my husband. He was the um, junior, he was a class president, no, he was a student body president. He was the king of the senior prom, he was um, voted most sparkling personality, Um, he was voted best legs in powder puff football, Uh, and he still has some pretty nice legs. and he was big man on campus. Um, everybody knew him. I was a new kid on the block, and by the time I had gotten to Singapore, I, when I was 11 years old, my parents moved to Liberia, West Africa, the three oldest of us were sent to boarding school. And when we were sent to boarding school, I believed at that time, an old idea in my head was the reason I was sent to boarding school was because my parents didn't want me or need me or I was a disappointment. Nobody ever said that. That was what I call information from nowhere." It lands here, it becomes fact for me, and then I act upon it as if it was real. So I was convinced that the reason I went to boarding school at the age of 11 was because my parents didn't want or need or love me, and that's not true at all. Um, and what I know today is I can't change any of the events of my past, but what I can do is I can change how I look at them. al has given me a way to change my perspective, and I'm so grateful for that because I know today how difficult it must have been for my parents to send their three oldest children thousands of miles away to a boarding school in a foreign country. I didn't see it that way um, but what happened to me at the boarding school i'm just gonna be real brief about this is i wanted to fit in. I've heard alcoholics talk about, you know, never fitting in. Jeff did a great job of describing it last night about being goofy. I relate completely to that even though I'm not alcoholic. Now I will say the program indicated at one point I was. I don't know if they know something I don't. Um, but I, I, I'm not alcoholic. But I never felt like I fit in. I was a goofy kid. I like to match plaids. Different color plaids. Um, <laughs> I, w- I had no fashion sense whatsoever. I wore glasses. I wore them over my hair because I thought that looked cool. Um, Laughter I was a mess. I was an absolute mess. But I'm 11 years old. I'm the youngest kid on this campus, and I want to fit in. So the way I know to fit in is I will be whoever you want me to be. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll say whatever you want me to say. Um, I was 11 when I had my first drink. It was Dutch gin. I've never drank it since. It was the most nasty stuff in the world. That's how I know I'm not alcoholic. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, But what I did was that is I took that lesson, I filed it away in the back of my head, and I carried that lesson with me until I came into Al-Anon, that I need to be who you need me to be be so that I can be okay. And when I got to Singapore, I'd be who you want me to be. I was on the student body. um, I was class representative or something, and when Kent and I were getting married and we were going through the yearbook, he looked at the picture and he said, Wow, I had no idea you were on the student body. Stood right behind you in the the picture. How did you not know I was there? But... um, I yeah. yeah. didn't know I was dealing with alcoholism. Um, but anyway, we um, so Ken and I had gone to high school together. I picked a college to come back to in Maine because I thought it looked pretty in the pictures. And it did look pretty in the pictures. Um, but when I went to school in Maine, um, I didn't feel like I fit in there because I was a world traveler, of course, don't you know? And... Um, I had a fake ID that said I was 23. I looked 14. Um, but it said I was 23, and all the boys on the dorm room floor loved me because I had the fake ID. I was the room that had the balcony, and when you're in Maine, if you break open the windows, you can put a keg of beer on my balcony, and all the football players will come to my room just to see me, um, or so I thought. I was popular. I was popular because I had the access to alcohol. I didn't know that then. I didn't know any of that until I got here. Um, but what ended up happening was I met my first hymn. Um, He was a year older than me. He drank every night, and I thought that was sophisticated. I thought that meant he was mature, and all these other people who were drinking and throwing up, that was just so immature. Um, And uh, he needed me, or so I thought. And the more he needed me, the more I needed to be needed, and the more I needed to be needed, the more needy I got. (laughs) And that will push people away, just FYI. Um, (laughs) And he ran screaming into the night as well as any normal person would have, Um, but I was sure it was me. I was sure it was me and I couldn't possibly stay on that campus because now everybody would know I had been rejected so um, I needed to move and so I moved to a, a university in the south because my parents had moved back to Atlanta. I went from Maine to Georgia and I knew that was my first geographic. When I got here I figured out my first geographic. I didn't like what, who I was, how I felt, I've got to go someplace else, it'll be better there. Um, and it wasn't because what I didn't know is wherever I went there I was um, and I did not know I was my own problem. So um, this is just the kind of person I brought into my marriage with my husband. Um, And I'd like to tell you who's the first alcoholic I encountered. I think that makes me look a little smarter, but it wasn't. Um, The guy before Kent that I was most serious about, I met at a charity softball game. Um, He was tall, which for some reason was important to me at the time. I'm not sure why, but he was tall. We were at a charity softball game, um, so he was socially conscious. That was important to me. he was athletic, and we went to the after party, and he was drinking beer, and he asked for my phone number. And I thought, oh, what a gentleman, he's asked for my phone number. So I left the party because I was working, and um, he, he called me about 10 o'clock that night, and he said, the party is still going on, and I, I'm staying on the couch right now because, you know, my first ex-wife, um, she, she took everything I had, that witch, and um, that was not the word he used, by the way. And um, I need to get up and go to work in the morning. I thought, oh, and he's employed, tall, socially conscious, and a job. I have won the trifecta. And so I said, sure, come sleep on my couch. Um, and that was, he did sleep on my couch that night. It was the only night in the next two and a half years he slept on my couch. Because as you recall, I don't date. I'm instantly in love. Um, and I related so much to what Jeff said last night about hey, Heidi expressing an interest in him. This guy expressed an interest in me. I'm in love. We're going to charge the road of happy destiny together. Um, and that's really when I got my first experience t- um, to what alcohol will do to and for somebody and what alcohol will do to me. And um, the story I usually share about being in that relationship, um, I, was not, I was raised with values. I was not raised in a religious home, but I had some values, and I know my parents did not approve of. Um, my older sister living with her, hus- the man who became her husband um, – but I wanted to live with this guy because I needed him to need me, and he needed a place to stay, so it made sense for him to live with me. And um, instead of just saying that's the choice I'm making, I justified, rationalized, and defended my decision behind that, well, my sister did it so I can do it too. Um, and what I know about the family disease of alcoholism, what it will do for me is it will push every value, every boundary, every moral, every uh, piece of self-respect and dignity that I have, it will push it to the side. Because that's what the disease does to me. Because it's way more important for me to be with him than it is to be by myself. Because you see, by the time I'm with him, I don't like myself anymore. I don't like who I am. I don't know who I am. I don't think I'm enough. Somewhere in the back of my little brain came this idea that I am not enough. In and of myself, I am not enough. So I must be whoever it is you need me to be so that I can get some sort of validation about myself. So I was willing to live in some pretty... um, Unacceptable situations in order to be with him, and um, God, I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism. I'm an incredibly well-educated woman. I have seven years of a higher education, and um, it never once occurred to me to to talk to this man about his drinking when he was not actually drinking. (laughs) Never occurred to me. I would wait until he'd get to beer seven, eight, nine, and then say, "You know, that's your seventh beer. That's your eighth beer." That's your ninth beer. And then the beer cans would start flying at me, and I didn't understand it. I couldn't figure out. I was baffled by the idea of why was he getting upset? I'm simply trying to have a conversation with him. You know, so I start to think, and I start to think. I have a, uh, a woman down in Alabama says, you are never too well educated to have a Jerry Springer life. <laughs> and that's, that's what I was living with, um, because I was constitutionally incapable of keeping my mouth shut when the door opened. I was unable to keep my mouth shut. And because, you see, when you have a progressive disease the way I have a progressive disease, I am convinced that the only reason he will stay with me is because he needs me, and what's the best way to make a man need you is to give them a credit card. And so I had given him my credit card. Um, I will report into you at the moment that that has changed since I've been in recovery, and that is one thing that my husband does miss a little bit. Um, (laughs) But what what happened, I had given him a credit card, and for whatever reason, he liked to buy beer and weapons. And I don't know what that's about. Um... But he would come home with a 12-pack of beer in one hand and a sawed-off shotgun. He'd a pawn shop in the other hand, and I could not keep my mouth shut. And I'd start yapping, yep, 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 yap, yep, yep, yep. And on this particular day, he'd come home with the gun and the beer, and he locked himself in the bathroom. And I was on one side of the bathroom door, and he was on the bathroom other side of the door, and he started saying, I'll just kill myself, I'll just kill myself. That'll make you happy, won't it? If I just shoot myself, I'm just sitting here and shoot myself. And I'd like to tell you that the reason I stood on the outside of that bathroom door for an hour and a half and I, tried, and I talked him out of that bathroom was because I loved him so deeply I did not want him to die. And I would have told you that's what the truth was when I got here. But the truth is, having done the inventory work, having um, worked with a sponsor who knows everything about me, the truth of the matter is I talked him out of that bathroom because what would you think of me, that he would rather be dead than to be with me? And that was the thought, was he cannot possibly kill himself. People will think he killed himself because of me. That's how selfish and self-centered I am, and I would not have told you that when I got here. So that's one instance of living um, in a situation where alcohol played a huge role. The other situation was I had tried to talk to him a number of times. Um, I lo- The first time I ever heard Ellen talk about explaining, I was like, oh, my God, that's me. I love to explain. I just love to explain. I just know that if I explain it to you at the right time, when you were in the right mood, sitting in the right chair and I've used the right words, and you were in the right mood, you will suddenly say, oh my God, I had no idea that's what you were saying. I am so sorry. We will do it your way. <laughs> Bingo! Um, because I'm only doing it for all the right reasons. And so I was trying to figure out a way to tell this guy how much his drinking bothered me, and to get him to not drink as much. So I did the only thing I knew to do, which was to think of my own solution. And so I, I blew up a photograph I'd taken of his son. We're in Alabama. It's He's wearing an Alabama jersey. He's in the foliage. to get football. And I blow this picture up. I didn't blow up to 5 by 7 or 8 by 10. I didn't even blow it up by 10 by 12. I blowed that sucker up to 16 by 20 poster size because I must get his attention, don't you know? I hang it on the wall directly across from his drinking chair, where he will see it. And then I stand in front of it as if I'm Vanna White, and I say, if you don't love me enough to quit drinking, perhaps you love your son enough. (laughs) I am here to report it did not work. Um... (laughs) It did not work. And um, that relationship continued to progress, as I'm sure that you know that it would. And um, when you have to purchase somebody's love, the purchasing gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, he came to me at one point and said that, um, I think we need to buy a house. And what that translates into the code talk that um, Father Tom was talking about the other night, the code, what that translates into is, I need you to buy me a house. Um, And if he'd picked any other house beside the house next to his parents, you might have a different speaker. But he picked the house next to his parents, and I said, I'm not buying that house. Um, And we got in a fight, and he took off. And I sat up all night doing what we do, calling on the cell phone 432 times. And he did what what they do, which is not answer the cell phone. Every time you call, turn it off. And he came in the next morning, and he said, I need space and time. I said, take all the space and time you want. I'm done. And I would like to report again that that... Decision lasted for a while and it lasted about 24 hours, and then I became a stalker, which is quite a skill. Um, and what I know today is he met somebody else that night, and I, what I know today is that we, are, we were on the way to somebody's bottom, his or mine. And um, so he left me for this other person, and what my brain said was, You are not enough. And um, so by the time Kent came into my life, he found me on the internet on February 1st, 1997. I remembered being in high school with him. I remembered, you know, this young man full of potential. Um, I remembered just a funny, funny guy, and uh, he emailed me, he found me on the um, high school bulletin board, and he emailed me, and I emailed him back, and then he emailed me again, and I said, um, forget this, Uh, call me, and I typed my phone number in, and I'd had surgery on a cyst on my wrist, and I typed it in incorrectly. So, this is another instance I know God showed up in my life without me knowing it. Um, Kent spent an hour and a half on the phone punching numbers into the phone trying to figure out where I was. He didn't know my last name, didn't know if I was married, didn't know where I was living. And on at 9 o'clock on February 1st, 1997, my husband got me on the phone. And the first phone call was 11 and a half hours long. Yeah, all that groaning was the men. Um, And I know today, (laughs) I know today that what I heard on the phone, Kent would go, I'd go, blah, 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 and he'd go, uh huh, uh huh. Uh-huh, just so that I would know that he was still there on the phone. And at some point during the course of this conversation, I said to him, I want a man who doesn't drink. And he said, I don't drink much. <laughs> well, how much is much? And he said, Three or four, five or six beers a week is what I think he said. And, well, we all know beer is not drinking. That's not alcohol. You can't possibly be an alcoholic if you drink beer. Now, this is where that strange blank mental spot that they talk about occurs in Alanons as well. The only thing the other guy drank was Budweiser. That's the only thing he drank. But now Kent's saying I only drink five or six beers. And I think, well, I can't possibly, I mean, that's, that's not drinking, really. I'm not even alcohol. Great. And then somewhere else in the middle of the conversation, I had no self-esteem whatsoever. I had no sense of self-worth. I said, yeah, 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 but do you want me? And he said, yeah. I'm in love. <laughs> and I really was. I hung that phone up, called my best girlfriend. I said, this is the man I'm going to marry. We hadn't talked about it. He was living in D.C. working for the airlines. I was living in Montgomery, Alabama. Um, I was going to Montgomery, Alabama for two years. I've been there 26. Apparently I am built for endurance, not speed. Um, and uh, Kent moved down to be with me. He likes to say I had what he wanted. I had a house, I had a car, I had insurance, and I had a job. Um, and he moved in with me. And um, there were a period, time periods during that year that we were dating, uh, living together. Um, Laughter. Living in sin, whatever you want to call it. There was times during that year I was concerned about his drinking. I'd tell him I was concerned about his drinking. And I remember one conversation we had. He came home, and I was crying on the on the floor of the living room, um, just sobbing. And I said to him, I think you have to drink to be with me. And he said, no, I don't. Um, and he tried really hard to stop drink Not to stop drinking, but to control his drinking. And what I know today is um, what he did was he cut back at home, but he... It, he um, sped up what he was drinking between the time he left work and the time he got home. So basically, I just made him drink more and in a more unsafe way because he was now drinking and driving. Um, But I thought, because he said he would stop drinking um, as much, that I had some sort of control or power over that. And so um, what happened was... um, my father called me in July of that year and uh, we had a thing with my little sister about getting married, not getting married, getting married, not getting married. And he said, pick a date. I'm not going through with you what I went through with your little sister. So I picked my parents' 40th wedding anniversary. I thought that'd be a great weekend to get married. And he said, fine. I hung the phone up and I called Kent. I said, hey, how do you feel about getting married on March 28th, 1998? And he said, okay. <laughs> we hadn't talked about it. He hadn't asked. It was immaterial to me. I had my man, and by God, I wasn't letting him go. So he called me back about 15 years later, and um, 15 years later, about 15 minutes later, and I need, I need to clarify this. I, I need to clarify this a little bit. Bef- and Kent's giving me permission um, to tell this part of his story. Um, when, he, when In 1992, he was married to somebody other than me, and his drinking drove him to abandon that family. And when he left, he left with nothing except what he had. and didn't have any paperwork, nothing. He never expected to get married again. So he did what drinking alcoholics do, which is they drink and they don't worry about anything else. You know, tomorrow will be whatever tomorrow is. So when I called Kent on that day, I would, today I wish I had a camera or a picture of his face. Um, I wish I had a picture of mine. Because he called me back 15 minutes later and he said, Hey, do you think I need to get divorced first? <laughs> yes, I do. But you see, God does for us what we cannot do and he works in strange and mysterious ways because I have a unique ability. My career gives me the ability to plan a divorce on one hand and a wedding on the other. Now, it never once occurred to me to wait until he's actually divorced. To plan the wedding. Because you see, I have my man. Somebody's going to steal him from me. I must keep him now that I have him. So I am doing this double life thing. I'm planning this divorce on one hand. I'm planning this wedding on the other hand. And I'm never telling anybody what's going on. Nobody knows this. Um, and then my father calls me and says, uh, I've, something's wrong. You've got to come home. I lived four hours from my parents. Um, I'm one of four children, but I'm the one who's the closest. And um, I came home, and I went with the doctor with my parents. And they, that two weeks after that, they diagnosed my father with brain cancer. And that was on August 25th, 1997. And uh, I made and, and I added last. I started praying to this God, and I said it this afternoon: the God of my expectation. Please, God, let him live. Please, God, let him live. Please, God, let him live. Just if you just let him, I'll do whatever you want me to do, God. Please, just let him live. Um, and my father passed away on September 25th, 1997, of brain cancer, within six weeks of being diagnosed. And I knew at that moment that God had killed my father, and the God of my expectation had killed my father. But that is not the God of my understanding today. Um, Alan has given me the ability to look at that experience so differently. I'm so grateful that my husband and my father got an opportunity to meet. So grateful that my husband got the opportunity to ask my father for permission to marry me. And I'm so grateful that my father got an opportunity to meet the man that is my husband. My father and my husband laughed a lot in that last six weeks. And I'm so grateful for that today. I was not grateful on September 25, 1997. Um, I was angry with God. I was sure that God hated me. I was convinced that I was a bad girl. I was on the bad girl list. Um, I have come to learn I was on the goofy girl list. I was not on the bad girl list. Um, but I was sure that that was it, and I made a conscious decision that moment that I was never going to pray to that God again. Um, so when I came in on September eighteenth, nineteen 1997, I may imagine my shock when I saw the word God on the steps. That was not pleasing to me. Um, but we pushed the wedding back. We got married in July. I do like to share that... Um, Even though we pushed the wedding back, Kent's divorce papers were signed on uh, February 18th, 1997. You have to wait 30 days in Alabama to get February 18th. You have to wait 30 days to get married. He could have gotten married. He would have been eligible for marriage on March 18th, 1997, and the original wedding date was March 28th. So how good am I that I had him divorced within 10 days of the wedding? (laughs) So Because that's how powerful I am. So uh, one of the things my my father had made Kent promise, Kent told me all the time he was estranged from his family, and my father made him promise to invite him to the wedding. And um, Kent did, and we invited him to the wedding. We got married in July, and um, this is the insanity of the disease of alcoholism. I do not drink. Kent came to me before his parents came to the wedding and said, my parents don't know I drink. I said, really? That's a lot. You're 36. Yeah, it's a long story. They don't know. I'm like, all right, fine. So he said, "We need to get a refrigerator and put it in the bedroom so I can have beer while they're here." <laughs> that sounded brilliant to me. There was nothing remotely odd about that conversation. So of course, you know, we bought the refrigerator, filled it full of beer, and we got married on, on uh, July 18th, 1998, and we went to Ireland on our honeymoon. It's a it's a great. He's grateful that he got to drink in Ireland. Um, we hope to go back when he won't be drinking in Ireland. Um, but so that was that was. We came in on September eighteenth, nineteen ninety eight. What had happened was we'd gone to play putt putt golf at a little gardens about an hour and a half from us. And um, I knew nothing about the disease of alcoholism. I had no exposure to the disease of alcoholism. I had no idea about being restless, irritable, and discontented. And I did not know that Kent could drink or he could do something, but he could not do both. I didn't know that. And um, and so I wanted to go play putt putt, and got... Love Kent, he loved me, and he was willing to go. And so we drove an hour and a half to go play putt-putt. We were not there five minutes. And the only way I can describe his conduct and his behavior and his attitude, and I apologize to the young people in the room, he was pissy. I mean, he was just pissy. And um, I don't know where this came from, but I said, do we need to leave? And he said, yes, we do. And so we got in the car, and this just came out. And I said, do we need to buy you beer before we go home? Oh, baby, if he was cranky before, I mean, it was just like this whole different person had appeared. No. And it's like, oh, I'd never seen that before. And so I do what I know to do, which is nothing, say nothing, say nothing, say nothing, peace at any price, peace at any price. We didn't speak for the next day. The whole day we didn't speak. And the next morning we pretended as if nothing had happened, you know, because I don't like conflict. I will, you know, I want the, the rough road smooth. I Whatever you need me to do to make things okay, I'm okay with that. Uh, and that was on a Sunday, uh, Saturday, the, the next Thursday. I had a professional obligation to go to, and um, we got in an argument again. And I don't, we, we rarely argue. Um, we didn't argue when he was drinking. We rarely argue now. We argue around now that he's not drinking um, because, because when he was drinking, he was comatose. Um, <laughs> I thought he was just agreeing with me. That's what I thought. Um, so what ended up happening was I went to this professional obligation, and, and we got in an argument before I left, and when I, got home, when I was on the way home, um, I heard a voice in my head as clear as a bell, said, you need to go to Al-Anon. I had no idea what Al-Anon was. I completely disregarded that voice. Walked in the house. Kent was in bed, and he said, I can't quit drinking without help. And I said, yes, let me help. I'm really good at helping. <laughs> And so I jumped up out of the bed. I got the Blue Cross Blue Shield um, provider book. I got all the information because I have it all filed. I'm very organized. I knew exactly what we needed to do. And by God, at 8 o'clock the next morning, we were at mental health. And the woman took one look at me and she said, do you have insurance? Yes, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield. Go to the treatment center. Don't come here. Go to the treatment center. And we took them to treatment. We took him to the University of Mead Haven is what we call it. Um, and this is the first resentment I can identify we walked in that treatment center, and there was an intake nurse there who I thought was incredibly rude to me. Um, first, she was large and she scared me. Um, and we sat, and I didn't know anything about treatment. I had no idea what we were doing there. Um, it never occurred to me they were actually going to keep him. That thought never crossed my mind. I don't know what I thought they were going to do be a good boy and quit drinking. I don't know. Um, so we sat down in the office of the intake nurse, and she said name, and he gave his name, and I gave his name birthday. so you are much quicker than I am. He gave his birthday. I gave his birthday. How much do you drink a night? He said, I said eight beers a night. He said 18 beers a night. And before I could whip around on him and say 18 beers a night, the intake nurse looked at me and she said, what are you, his mother? And I was insulted. I was absolutely offended. Now, I thought she was accusing me of looking old and bad. That's what I thought she was accusing me of. And I'm a newlywed. I know today I looked old and bad. But I was newlywed, and I was offended. And then she immediately escorted me out of her office and said, you need to go to the family counselor. And that family counselor took one look at me, and she said, if you love him, you will go to Al-Anon. And I thought, how dare you suggest I don't love him? I've just married him, for God's sake. Of course I will go to Al-Anon. So the idea of coming for all the right reasons, I did not come for all the right reasons. I didn't come for any right reason. I came because I was offended and insulted by these people at this treatment center who had no idea who I was. By God, I was going to show them who I was, who they were dealing with. and it turns out part of the disease of alcoholism affects my hearing. I, <laughs> I don't always hear what's said. I oftentimes hear things that are not said. And so what happened was that family, the family counselor, who is an active member of Al-Anon, is a member of one of the groups in Montgomery now and has been a long-time member of Al-Anon. She said to me, or this is what I heard her say, if you love him, you will go to Al-Anon. And I thought she said, and you won't be able to see him at treatment center." family group or whatever it was tomorrow if you don't go. Fine, I will go to Al-Anon. But you see, I can't show up someplace where I don't know anything about it, so I have to go down the computer and stop finding out what what exactly is al because I cannot have you think I don't know what's going on. Um, I will tell this one story on myself. I am very good at convincing you I know what I'm talking about even if I have no clue what's going on. Yes, I know. You refer to that as lying. I, refu- I refer to that as um, creative argument. Whatever. Whatever. Um, <laughs> But I would, I would just make pronouncements. You know, my father used to say, if you cannot dazzle them with your brilliance, baffle them with your, and you can fill in the blank. <laughs> so I'd make these pronouncements about stuff. When we were actually in Holland, at about we were less than a year in recovery, and we were at this huge flower garden, and I said to my husband, oh, look, that's a Gerber daisy. And my mother was with me, with me and us, and my mother is English and quite the gardener. She said, that's not a Gerber daisy. I said, it most certainly is. She said, no, it's not. There's the sign. It was not a Gerber daisy. <laughs> Cat turned around and said, oh my God, you talk about things like you know things and you know nothing. (laughs) And so from this point forward, anytime I say something, he says, is that a Gerber Daisy? (laughs) Possibly, maybe, we'll see. I don't know, I'm hot, 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 it's cold outside, I'm hot up here. Um, so, so I go. I go to Al-Anon. Um, I got online. I found this online meeting. Thank you, God. There are online ma- meetings, and thank God there are people who are practicing patience and tolerance. Because I know I interrupted everybody because I needed my answers. And every single person on that online meeting said, get to a meeting in person. Um, The translation said, stay out of our meeting, go someplace where they can help you. (laughs) Um, And so I went to the the meeting at the treatment center the next day, and um, there were three little old ladies in that meeting, and I don't want to offend anybody. I was 35 years old. They had blue hair. They looked like they were 105 if they were a day. Um, And I also have a disease of perception, and um, that's, I thought, how old they were. And I walked in that meeting, and um, they said, this is what I heard them say, oh, honey. They'll drink again. They all drink again. But have hope. And I thought that was the stupidest thing I ever heard. And I burst into tears. And um, I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I didn't know what we were getting ourselves into. And um, they did say something about literature in that meeting. And so I intuitively knew I needed the books. So I bought every Al-Anon book they had. I hauled them around in the canvas sack. I don't remember else has done now. I hauled those books around the canvas sack because I knew my answers were in those books. My only problem was I did not know what the questions were. And the questions I I was asking was, what is wrong with him? Why does he do what he does? I don't understand why he drinks the way he drinks. I don't understand if he loves me, why he won't stop. And what I know today through the program of Al-Anon is that love has nothing to do with it. Love has absolutely nothing to do with it. My husband is not a bad guy trying to get good. He is a sick guy trying to get well. He has a disease called alcoholism. Um, And I went to family family counseling like they told me to go, and... um, they, they, I'd get in, walk into family counseling, and they would say, um, the family counselor who, you know, had insulted me, said, did you go to Al-Anon this week? Yes, I did. How many times did you go? And I'd tell her, and she'd write it down. She said, what did you learn? And I'd tell her, and she'd write it down. And I intuitively knew. They'd said something about if you go to all eight weeks of family counseling, you will graduate with a certificate. And I knew that this Al-Anon stuff was extra credit. They were not telling anybody about. And if I, I was going to graduate number one in my family counseling class, so I was going to keep going to Al-Anon to be the best student ever. Um, but what happened was four days into this deal, four, now two-month wedding anniversary, four days into this deal, my husband came home and said, um, oh, and that's another resentment, by the way, 28-day 28, 28 treatment, they sent him home after four days, four days. Um, came home and he said, I need to be rigorously honest with you. That's not a conversation I'd like to have. Um, and he sat me down and he said to me, um, there are some things I need to tell you. I am not a college graduate. I dropped out of um, VMI in my third year to join the Army. I did not get an early out from the military um, when the drawdown happened in 1992. There is not $25,000 sitting in a bank account in northern Virginia, which is the result of the, drawdown, uh, the early out. I got kicked out of the Army for alcohol rehabilitation failure. And this is not my first treatment center. It's my third. One of them was a year long. Yeah. I can tell the Al-Anons from them who groan at that. Um, and I will tell you, the thought never once crossed my mind to leave. Because, like I said, I'm built for endurance, I'm not built for speed. Um, But I had an idea in my head, and this goes back to how selfish and self-centered and self-absorbed I am and how important it is about what you think about me. I told my husband before we married, I will be a widow before I'm a divorcee. And he said, okay. And about three seconds later, he said, that means I need to be dead. (laughs) Yes, it does. Um, and the sad part—we laugh about that—but the sad part about that is, yet again, another time I'd wish this man dead. That I absolutely adore. I'd rather him die than to have you think I'd failed at my marriage. And that says an awful lot about how sick I was when I got here. Um, so that was four days into the, um, into the, the, this program, this recovery we call this recovery journey that we're on. And he will tell you when he talks, he slept like a baby that night. I did not. <laughs> But it never crossed my mind to leave. I thought, all right, what am I going to do? And um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And he, after my husband was honest with me, he went, home, went back to the treatment center the next day and was honest with them. And this is why I'm so incredibly grateful to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because this treatment counselor was a member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he said, you need to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. And um, Ken said, I've been to Alcoholics Anonymous. And the guy said, yeah, Really? And um, said, do you have a home group? No. Do you have a sponsor? No. Have you worked the Steps? No. And the guy said, you haven't been to Alcoholics Anonymous. You're going to Alcoholics Anonymous tonight. And they sent Kent to Alcoholics Anonymous on that night. And Kent came home at that meeting. And he said, I have to go to a meeting every day for a year. And this is how spiritual I was. And I said, what the hell am I going to do? <laughs> I'm an new one. And he said, I think you should do everything in Al-Anon that I do in AA. And that began, what I used to refer to as the year-long period of my husband sponsoring me in Al-Anon. Turns out it was only six months. Felt like a year. <laughs> um, and um, because I am only going to meetings. I, that's what I'm doing is I'm going to meetings. I don't have a sponsor. I don't, I'm, I'm reading literature, but I don't know what I'm le- reading because I don't know what the problem is. And um, I'm not talking to anybody about, about what's going on with me because, you see, there's nothing wrong with me. If he would just act right, I would be fine. Um, And when you come to Al-Anon, they tell you, you know, if you stay with us, you're going to discover there's something seriously wrong with you. And what I've discovered is everything I did, I did stone cold sober. Everything I did was a direct result of my sick thinking. Um, and so then Kent came back and said that he had to go to a meeting for every day for a year, and then what am I going to do? I'm going to go to a meeting because he's at a meeting. I'm not going because I want to go. It's, i got nowhere else to go. So I'm going to the meeting. He's going to the meeting. He decides after about three days that he's going to get into shape, so he's going to start running. And because I'm not working any program of recovery, I'm going to help him run. Which sounds insane now. And so we're going to run three days a week, two miles a day, uh, two miles at a pop. And I'm dealing with alcoholism. I don't know what that is. So within a week, we're training for a marathon. And and when I say we, I mean we. Because he's out there running, and I'm out there riding my little $79 Walmart bike, keeping up, helping him when he runs. Um, God almighty, it was unbelievable. And um, this... This sponsor of his, this sponsor—I will tell you this. This is my experience. Um, his first sponsor, I did not love. His, I did not like his first sponsor. His first sponsor did not like me. Turns out that's completely immaterial for either one of you to recover in a program. In a program, um, and this sponsor gave Kent this little sticker that said, "You were looking at the problem." And we put that on the bathroom mirror, and Kent looked at it every morning and every night. With this little tiny bathroom the size of this podium, and every night and every every morning I'd look at that sticker, and every night I'd look at that sticker, and it's like that is so good for him. <laughs> that is just so good for him. And at about two months in, his sponsor said that he needed to go to this conference called Serenity by the Sea in Panama City, Florida. And um, I had no idea what Alcoholics Anonymous was, but I this idea I'd made up in my head that at the Alcoholics Anonymous meetings there were all these beautiful women there. They were all wearing tank tops. They were all in cut-off shorts. They were all sitting on the boys' laps, and they were all wiggling. <gasps> To the best of my knowledge, nobody's ever identified that meeting. Um, but I was convinced that that's the one he was at. And so Kent came home and said, we need to go I need, to, we need. to go to this conference. And I said, we can't afford to go to this conference. I had this huge fear of financial insecurity. I don't know where that came from, but it was there. Um, and I know today it's because the fear of financial insecurity means I don't have to trust God. Um, and I'm grateful to Ellen and to Dick for being willing to share their experience on that. But I had this huge fear of financial insecurity, and um, Kent said... Um, I, I, I'm not proud of this, but it's what happened. I made, him call, I made him call his sponsor. I stood next to him as he called his sponsor, and he said, Corey says we can't go to this conference. And his sponsor apparently said something along the lines of, you said you were willing to go to any lengths. go to the conference, click. Uh, actually, he said, you're already in debt. What's another 250 bucks?" Click. And Kent turned around to him, and for the first time ever, he said, I'm going to this conference with or without you. You're welcome to come with me, but I'm going to go. And I thought, I can't possibly send them to the beach without me. I mean, all these women were going to steal my man. Um, Now, it was December, but I was convinced they'd be all out there in bikinis. Um, And so we were going to go to this conference at the beach. And on the way down to this conference, um, Kent was working at Michael's Arts and Crafts. And um, we're on the way down, and he says to me in the car on the way down, I gave notice today, and I said, oh, that's nice, honey, notice of what? (laughs) He said, I quit my job. And this is what came out of my mouth. Wow, um, that sounds like a pretty big decision. I'm sure you've done what you think is right for you. But in the future, when you make huge decisions like that, I'd really appreciate it if you talked to me first. And he said, okay. Now, that is not what was going through my head. What was going through my head was, we need that measly salary. We need that pitiful salary that you bring, and we're going to debtor's prison. I know they don't have it, but they're going to reestablish one just for me. <laughs> I didn't say any of that stuff. I just said that, and I don't know if he was as stunned as I was stunned that it came out of my mouth. We went down to the conference, um, and we got down to the conference, and I always like to share this because um, <laughs> hi. the first Al-Anon speaker I ever heard was Mary Pearl. <laughs> The first AA speaker I ever heard was Clancy. The only way I can describe that experience was I was horrified. I was absolutely appalled that people would get up in front of a microphone in full of rooms full of complete strangers um, and give what I would consider a confession in my profession. I did not hear anybody give Miranda warnings. Um, And uh, I was just absolutely horrified by what I heard, but what got me was the laughter. Um, and the judgment, because obviously my husband and I were not near as bad as they were, and if this could work for them, then maybe, maybe you know, we could get a little bit better. We didn't; we were not near as bad as them, so we didn't need to get as well as them. Um, but I walked, I walked out of that meeting, and I must have had a look on my face because the taper that was back there handed me another set of CDs and said, "Honey, listen to her." And um, I, that's where I, that's where we got hooked on CDs, and we started listening to the CDs. And I, I said at that time to Ken, I said, "I'm never getting up behind a podium." <laughs> never say never and here I am Um, but that was the beginning because I started listening to other people talk I remember saying in one of the groups I was at I said I've heard this thing about a sponsor and um, one of the little old ladies at that meeting said oh we don't have sponsors we just let the group sponsor you and I thought you are a sick bunch of people I'm not letting you do anything near me Um, but I kept hearing this thing about getting a sponsor get a sponsor, get a sponsor so I got a sponsor nobody ever said anything about using a sponsor so I had one but I didn't know what to do with it with her. Um, and the other thing that we did that was critically important to Kent and I was every night, for the every Saturday night for the first year was date night. And we would go to dinner and then we'd go to an open AA speaker meeting. And I'm so grateful for open AA speaker meetings because that is where I learned about the disease of alcoholism. That is what I learned about the symptoms of the disease of alcoholism and that drinking was but a symptom of it. Because I will tell you that first year of recovery was the hardest year of our life. Well, the hardest year of my life. He'll tell you it was the best year of his life because he was on this pink cloud. It was awful for me. Absolutely awful. Because the man I married was no longer the man I married he suddenly started having opinions about how to spend what I considered to be my money he started having opinions about what I considered you know how to spend my vacation he started having opinions about what to watch and what I considered to be my television um, and he was voicing them out loud which was I thought really inconsiderate um, (Laughter) And it was really difficult, and I was terrified. I was convinced that he was going to you know, somehow meet somebody better suited for him in AA. And the only reason I got a sponsor was because I was afraid he was going to find somebody else and leave me. The only reason I worked the steps was because I was afraid he was going to outgrow me. And what happened was a woman from Oklahoma, and I know there are a lot of women here from Oklahoma, and I know there's a lot of women from Texas here. You, you guys have something special in recovery in Oklahoma and Texas. And this woman from Oklahoma came into our meeting on a Wednesday night, and um, we were sharing on the 12th step, and I hope I never forget this night. And we were going around the room. I had six months in, and I said, Well, I haven't worked the steps yet, but I am spreading the map I'm, I'm carrying the message. And we got around to her, and this is what I heard her say. Honey, you are not carrying the message. You are spreading the disease. Shut up. <laughs> uh- I know today that she did not say, shut up, but that's what I heard. And I went home in tears, just boohooing, And Kent got very afraid. And he said, What are you going to do? And I said, I'm going to ask you to be my sponsor. <laughs> Bad idea to say that out loud because then he's just on it. He's like a dog with a bone, man. And we're doing this whole marathon training thing still because all I'm doing is going to meetings, not working a single step. And we're on the bike one Sunday morning. And I'm on the bike and he's running and he's jabbering. He likes to talk when he exercises. I don't like to talk. And he's talk, 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 talk. Got a sponsor, got a sponsor. What step are you on? Step of on, step of on. And I will tell you this, we plant seeds we don't know we planted. And the seeds that Mary Pearl had planted was, you know, homicide is an option. And so I whipped around on the bike, got up to the house and picked the phone up and called this woman and said, Will you be my sponsor? And she said, Why me, honey? And I said, because I'm gonna kill him. I'm gonna run him over with the truck. I can make it look like an accident. Um <laughs> And she said, no, why me as a sponsor? And I said, this, this is God doing for me. I want what you have. I said, I want what you have. I didn't know what she had, but I knew what she was living with, and I knew she was living with it with grace and dignity and laughter, and I wanted that, and there was not a lot of laughter in our house at that point. And she said something incredibly important to me. She said, are you willing to do what I've done for as long as I've done to get what I've gotten? And I said, yes. I had no idea what I was agreeing to. But I said yes. And that was the willingness and the teachability that we talked about earlier this afternoon, being willing to take the action. And that was the first time I stood up and took responsibility and accountability for my own recovery. And she started me in the steps. And we started working. And um, she started, I I did that fourth and that fifth step. And I did the sixth and seventh step. And I did the um, eighth and ninth step. And I started making those amends. um, And I, and I, thought the 10th step said um, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it to our husband um, and she clarified that for me. I didn't have to admit everything to Kent um, but I needed to run stuff by her and I started running stuff by her and our life started to change and Kent was working with a sponsor and he'd gone back to school and things were getting better and things were getting better and things were getting better. But when I made that third step decision with her, one of the decisions, I mean we actually talked about this recently, the decision I made was not only to go on with the rest of the steps but this was a commitment I was making to me. It was no longer an option not to be in Al-Anon. It was no longer an option not to come to meetings. It was no longer an it was no longer an option to you know maybe think someday in the future I won't need Al-Anon. I made the decision then and there. Al-Anon was a way of life for me, and if I wanted to be happy, George, and free, this was a commitment that was always going to be in my life, and I've never not come to meetings. I've never not had a sponsor. I have never not worked the steps, and that's just how that's worked for me, and our lives began to change, and Kent came to me and said, we need to, I really feel like I need to grow financially. I need to be responsible financially. And we did that thing about three times before we came up with this plan, that it was making me crazy watching the credit card bill. It was just making me absolutely insane. Couldn't figure out how he could charge all that he was charging in 30 days. What are you buying? It made no sense to me. And so my sponsor and I came up with it, and I talked with Ken about it, and we prayed about it, and we had a group conscience in the family about it, and we gave him an allowance that was going to work for us. He was going to have the allowance. And that was great. And um, he came to me a few years into recovery, and he said – I really feel like I owe the military something because I got kicked out of it. I want to apply um, for voluntary deployments um, to Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, when I married Kent, he was not in the military. And I had enough sense at that point to say, um, can I pray about that? And can I, for a woman who was never going to pray, that was unusual, can I pray about that? And Can I talk to my sponsor about that? And he said, yeah, I'd like you to do that. So I went to my sponsor and said, Oh, my God, he wants to deploy! Um, because it turns out I'm a tad melodramatic. And um, <laughs> this, is, this is the extent of the entire conversation I had with my sponsor about this particular issue. Do you practice the fifth tradition in your marriage? Well, yes, you know that I do. What is the fifth tradition? Well, we practice the 12 steps of AA ourselves, we support and encourage our alcoholic relatives, and we welcome and comfort we give welcome and comfort to families of alcoholics. Well... If you're going to support and encourage your alcoholic relatives, how can you possibly say no? Well, when you put it that way, I don't guess I can. Okay. That was the entire conversation about that. So Kent started applying for voluntary deployments, and I started doing, um, I I got involved, my sponsor got me involved in service, and I started at the GR level, and I became a DR, uh, I became a group representative, then I became a district representative, and... um, then I, then I, my sponsor encouraged me to stand for an area position, and my brother-in-law, that my sister had been married to, was uh, passed away unexpectedly, um, and I felt the need as part of the work I'd been doing to be the kind of sister that I wanted to be, that I needed to go and be at the funeral. And I went. My mother and I went to California, and it was the weekend of elections. And I said to folks at the area assembly, "I'm willing to stand for any position, and I'll serve wherever you want me to serve, but I really do not want to be treasurer." And they said okay, and they called me right after the funeral. Hey, guess what? You're treasurer. <laughs> of course I am. And so I did that for three years, and then I did, um, and then I stood for, for chairperson for three years. And in the course of that, my chair, the time I was chairperson, we were having a lot of issues. We were a joint area. We met with AAs, um, and we'd done it for years. And we were in a really, really, really crummy hotel, um, really crummy hotel. And um, the AAs were not willing. To move, or they were looking to a place to move that wouldn't include us. And as a chairperson, um, we brought it to the assembly that perhaps we needed to be self-sufficient. We needed to practice seventh tradition and, and hold our own assemblies. And um, I was I I was the part of that process, and we became a standalone assembly. And um, it was difficult because a lot of folks. Um, in AA thought we were making a bad decision. But it was a decision that we felt as al we needed to make. And it's been, it's been a good decision for the al um, But I didn't stand again after that. I made the decision. I, I stood for delegate and didn't get it. And for about a second, I was like, oh, they don't like me. And then I thought, I don't want to be delegate. Great. Yay. And I didn't stand for anything else. Um, and that was a good decision for me because things started happening. And um, one of the things that started happening was came, came to me at about eight, seven and a half Years of sobriety, and he said to me, "Um, I've gotten us into a little, I've gotten us into some financial difficulty. And I said, Really? What do you mean, we? And he said, "Um, I've been getting some unsolicited credit card offers in the mail, and I have been accepting them, and um, my monthly allowance will no longer cover the costs of the monthly payments, and um, we're in trouble. And I said, all right, um, one, it's only money. We'll figure it out, which was not me speaking. It had to have been God speaking. Um, but I said to him, what are you willing to do differently? Because I'm not willing, I am not willing to continue to live like this. And so he had to make some decisions in his program, and, his, um, and what he ended up doing was he ended up changing home groups, he ended up changing sponsors. There was nothing wrong with his home group or a sponsor, but he had ceased to be willing to be sponsored. And I know today there's a difference between having a sponsor, using a sponsor, or allowing yourself to be sponsored. And he had ceased to allow himself to be sponsored. And I knew he had ceased to allow himself to be sponsored. I was watching this man. I love this man dearly. I love him with all my heart. I was watching what was going on in the house. Things were appearing in our house that should not be appearing on his allowance. For example, I came home one day and there was a ginormous gun safe in the garage, and I said, "Wow, that's a really nice gun safe, honey." And he said, "Yeah, I bought it on layaway." My husband's not bought anything ever in his entire life on layaway, and I thought, "Yeah, that's not accurate. That's that, that can't possibly be true." Um, but I didn't. Oh, that's nice, honey. Um, but I called my sponsor, and she said something very important to me. She said, y- "You can interrupt this process for him if you want to, to make yourself feel better." but he may not get where he needs to go. Are you willing to do that so that you will feel a little bit more comfortable? And I wasn't willing to do it. But I didn't take any of that to him. I took that to my sponsor. I did the work with my sponsor. I continued to do the inventory work. I continued to work the steps. I continued to be active in my program of recovery, and I watched my husband go where he needed to go. So that when he came to me and he said, this is where we're at, and I know people are wondering, you know, how much debt could he have gotten you into? He got us into $42,000 of credit card debt in two years. Um, yeah, it was it was quite a shocker when we sat down and added all the numbers up. But what we did is what we've learned to do in Al Anon and AA. We had a group conscience meeting. We had a, we made a plan. We invited God into the plan, and we we did the plan that we believed God had in mind for us to do. Um, and we, and, and you know, He wanted to not spend anything for. Um, a year or two, whatever it took, and I was not willing to do that. When I came in, I had a three-year financial plan that if we did not spend a dime on anything, and I mean not a dime on anything, food, gas, mortgage, nothing, we could have had my three-year financial plan paid off. Um, And when he came to me, we were this close. To my financial plan being paid off and now we're $42,000 in debt I believe that that's God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself because it kept me on my knees it kept me trying to draw closer to God of my understanding saying God I don't know what you have in mind for me but I'm willing to do to do your will you baffle me I don't like this but I'm willing to do what it is you want me to do um, and we started doing this and he got a different sponsor and his sponsor got him in the inventory work of 10 and 11 I started hearing Kent talk about the spiritual disciplines of 10 and 11, the spiritual disciplines of 10 and 11 the spiritual disciplines of 10 and 11, 11 i'm like what are you talking about and we started talking about it and it's about step 10 for me is not merely saying you know when we were wrong promptly uh, continue to take personal inventory when we were wrong promptly admitted it i said it this afternoon i thought that meant saying okay i'm sorry i was wrong um maybe to somebody else maybe to the person i had harmed but it wasn't that was it um and step 11 was you know you sought through prayer and meditation to improve your conscious contact with god praying only for knowledge of his will and the power to carry it out i was praying for god's will and the power to carry out um I wasn't seeking to improve anything. I was saying, you know, please help me be the woman you want me to be in the morning. Thank you for helping me not kill anybody today. That was what I was doing in the program. And so we started talking about this, and we started – he started doing some things, and I started um, watching him. And I started getting interested in what he was talking about, and I started doing some – we started doing some reading. We were reading spiritual literature. We were reading a variety of things. Um, Including the big book, um, I was reading things in there, and I started putting some of this stuff into practice. And Kent came to me, and um, we were at dinner with my mother. One of my amends to my to my parents is um, to kind of to be the kind of daughter that she wants me to be, not the kind of daughter that I want to be, but the daughter that she wants me. And one of the things Kent and I do as an amends to my mother is we take her to dinner every week. She lives directly across the street from us. And um, I, we, we take her to dinner every week, and we were at dinner one Wednesday afternoon. And the interesting thing is we used to take her to dinner on Sunday, and Kent, I called Kent and said, hey, let's go have dinner at this local steakhouse. And he said, sure, and he showed up with my mother because that's the kind of man Alcoholics Anonymous has created for me. He's transformed my husband into this kind and loving and caring man. And he just saw my mom and said, hey, you want to come to dinner? And she said, yeah, she was so excited. So she came to dinner, and we're at dinner, and Kent said, I don't think I'm going to get to go. And I'm like, go where? I mean, I was so – I had – Let go of this so completely, I had no idea what he was talking about. So I'm not going to get to go on these deployments. And I said, really? Um, I hadn't even realized he was deploying. He had been applying. And I said, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. I know that was important to you. (laughs) Turns out, I thought, I just had to be willing. I didn't have to do anything. Yay, willingness. Um, And then he called me on Monday. That was on a Wednesday. He called me on Monday afternoon at my work at 4 o'clock. And he said, hey, I'm going to Djibouti. And I said, where? He said, Djibouti, Africa. Really? For how long? He said a year. Wow, okay. Um, hung the phone up, called my sponsor, said, he's getting deployed. Um, and she gave me some very, she rarely gives me strict instructions, but she gave me some really strict instructions in this case. She said, you will not dump your feelings on him. You will not whine to him. You will be supportive and encouraging. You're going to practice those traditions in your marriage. You're going to see him getting excited about doing this, and you are not going to become whiny and self, full of self-pity. You're going to be supportive. And so I watched my husband get excited about this opportunity he was given. And I was getting scared because I was afraid of what was going to happen when he was gone. Um, And so I said a little prayer. I didn't say it out loud because I didn't want God to actually heal me. And I said I would be willing to work with anybody who asked me um, to work with him during the year that he was gone. And I thought that year was going to be all about Kent. And... um, I was actually on my way to um, Nashville, Tennessee. It was the weekend that I met Lee for the first time. Um, Kent came in in August and said, I've got to be in Djibouti in 10 days. I have 10 days to put my husband on a plane. I won't see him for a year. And um, so we got him all packed up, and he said, I don't want you to cry at the airport. And I said, I'll do my best. And I did not cry in front of him at the airport. Um, But I managed to make it out to the car, and I put my husband on a plane and sent him to Djibouti, Africa on a Tuesday afternoon. I had to be in Nashville to talk on a Thursday. And um, I got to Nashville, and they had chocolate covered strawberries in my room for me and Kent called me and said, I'm in a room with I'm in a tent with 60 guys and no air conditioning, it's like 150 and I said, well it sucks to be you I'm in a room with chocolate covered strawberries (laughs) laughter and my sponsor had said, um, when he said, when left, find something that you guys can do together that he's there and you're here. And so I would said that to Kent, and Kent said, hey, guess what I figured out we could do? And I said, what? He said, we can scuba dive. I'm like, great, I'm afraid of being underwater. But I didn't say that to him. I said, great. Um, and I was convinced it would be like, you know, nine months before he'd learn to scuba dive. Well, somebody pulled some screens, strings from my husband. He was on scuba diving on Monday. got called me and said, my first lesson is today. When's your first lesson? Crap, Wednesday, I guess. And so I learned to scuba dive. I learned to scuba dive because al told me I could do things I never thought I could do. al told me, show up and be that woman that you think God's calling you to be, that he's created you to be, and that he challenges you to be. Nobody said it was going to be easy. And um, we continued with the whole financial plan that we'd come up with, and Kent was working over there. And the one thing he asked me before he left, he said, people are saying, I really need to be sure you're okay with this. And I said, can I ask you a question? He said, yes. I said, is this part of your ninth step amends to the military? He said, yes. I said, honey, then do it. Why would I stand in the way of you making that amends? And the only reason I needed to do that was because I knew what the ninth step was because I was an Al Anon. I knew what a, how important it was because I had worked that ninth step. I knew how important it was because I'd worked all the steps. So Kent got to go and have this fabulous opportunity, and I was sure it was all going to be about him. And I spent that entire year working with people, showing up with people, working, taking people through the steps, getting on a plane, going places I never thought I would go. Um, being of service to the God of my understanding and to my fellows. And that's what I did for that whole year. And um, at the end of the year, what I realized was, well, he had a great time. And one of the things that happened as a direct result of that was um, I got an opportunity to go to Tanzania, Africa in the middle of that year on an eight-day photo safari with my husband and a private guide. My husband bought me an incredibly beautiful camera. I took 4,200 pictures, um, and that's no exaggeration. Um, And I got to scuba dive in the Indian Ocean with this man that I love. That would not have happened had I been in charge. That would not have happened without the program of Al Anon because I didn't think I could do any of the stuff that I did. Um, And at the end of the year, what I realized was, for the first time ever, I am enough. In and of myself, I am enough. I absolutely adore my husband. I love him with every fiber of my being. But if he were to come to me tomorrow and say, I need to leave, it would break my heart, but it would not destroy me because today I get to be married to my husband. It is a choice. I don't need to be married to my husband, and I don't have to be married to my husband. But I get to be married to my husband, and that is so different from anywhere I'd ever been before. I am married to the most incredible man, thanks to Alcoholics Anonymous. We get to do the most incredible things. Sunday morning, Ashley, Jason, Kent, and I, with no thought at all of getting acclimated, thought it would be a great idea to go to the peak of the mountain. Ashley and Jason said, we can't get all the way up there. And we said, no, no, let's try. Let's see. What the hell? And we went. And you get to the last 250 yards, and it's all rocks. And you have to climb on your hands and knees, and you have to be careful where you go. And what Kent and I have learned to do is he is a mountain goat. I mean, he was up that thing in a shot. Um, But what we've learned to do is he allows me to go at my own pace. And he allows me to check somebody every now and then. And we're on this path together. We're journeying side by side. Sometimes he might go here, sometimes I might go there, but we're together in on the journey. We're together on the path. I have a relationship today with a God of my understanding that so far exceeds anything of my expectations. I believe that I am called to be. I believe that God is calling me to be this woman. And the question I ask myself today every morning is who is that woman that God is calling me to be? I look around the rooms of Alan on AA and I see women who've worked the steps. And they're examples to me of who is that woman I want to be. Kent's sponsor talked about the story about broken pots. And um, there's an old story about um, a tribe that carries water in broken pots. And do you know why God uses broken pots to carry the water? Is so you know it's not the pot carrying the water. You are my tribe of broken pots. You have given me a life beyond my wild expectations. You have allowed me to become happy, joyous, and free. And if you are new tonight, I I know we say keep coming back. I started saying stay. Stay with us. Stay with us long enough to develop a relationship with the God of your understanding who wants you to be happy, joyous, and free. And your life will exceed your wildest expectations just like mine. So from the bottom of my heart, I thank you so much for my life.